Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the Word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. This morning we're going to be in the last of the seven letters of Revelation uh, 2 and 3. And I, I just, you know, I thought of uh, the letter that I got to talk about this morning when I read this news story about dudding. You know, uh, in November, there's going to be a, at least a couple of big issues that are on the ballot here in Ohio. And one of them is where the, uh, the abortion industry is going to try to enshrine their business into the Constitution. And then the second one, though, is that Big Pot also wants to get uh, their industry going here by legalizing um, their stuff. And the pot industry has grown so huge, right, um, that it's, you know, not only got big lobbying, but at the same time, they've got some problems. And one of the things is they can't compete with the uh, illegal aspect of the industry because uh, the illegal industry can undercut them price-wise because they don't have to deal with regulations. And the other thing is when you get a big industry that's growing stuff like this, uh, all these like diseases hit your stuff. And lately what's been happening with uh, marijuana that's being grown, the cannabis that's being grown, is it's been hit with diseases that are weakening it. Um, and um, this is something that's called dudding. So it's like the, the product or whatever's coming out is just weaker than supposedly it's supposed to be. And that was what was happening in this church that we're going to be talking about this morning. Dudding. Oh, let me turn this on. Okay. Okay, and the church we're talking about here is Laodicea. It's the last of the seven letters. A church that was dudding. Um, I have to tell you right from the start here that this, is, this letter that's being written to the Laodiceans is a pretty negative letter. Jesus doesn't have anything good to say about this particular church. And this is a, a kind of a message that um, I kind of frankly wish I didn't have to bring. You know, it's nice to bring messages about Philadelphia where it's going, yeah, you're, you're not strong, but you're faithful, and it's great, you know, and stuff. And this one here is a kind of message that I'm going like, you know, it kind of cuts close to the bone. And every time I read this letter, I feel like vaguely like guilty. And I'm thinking, man, it would be nice if we had a guest preacher here this morning. I could <laughs> shuffle this off on it, and then I, I would kind of be praying that he'd water the message down so I'd have a feel-good thing coming out of it anyway. But I'm going to have to plow through this thing uh, uh, with you. And so we're going to start, uh, oh, let me tell you a little bit about the city of Laodicea. It was about 11 miles from Colossae. You know, you've, read, you've heard of the book and read the book of Colossians, a letter to Colossians. It was about 10, 11 miles away from there in southwest Turkey. And Laodicea was a wealthy city. That is a picture of the reconstructed, rebuilt amphitheater they had in Laodicea. It, it seated up to maybe 25,000 people. So the city had a lot of money. It had also one of the largest medical colleges uh, in the Roman Empire, and they were known for a couple of products. One was black uh, clothing. Their textile industry was, was very prosperous, and they also uh, uh, produced a certain type of eye salve that was, uh, that was also a, a, a bestseller. Uh, Laodicea was prosperous, but it was also pretty vulnerable because they didn't have their own water supply. And so they had to have their water, their fresh water, 
pumped in from Hierapolis through aqueducts. And Hierapolis was also known for hot springs. So the water that they would get, the drinking water they would get, was, was war- kind of warm water. And uh, it's unlike, you know, the nice, fresh, cold water that we get here in our Lake Erie cocktails, you know. But they didn't have it, they didn't have it so good there. So anyway, Revelation chapter 3, starting with verse 14. And Jesus, remember, is dictating this letter to John to send to the Laodiceans, right? And Jesus says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. You know, like it talks about in, in 1 Corinthians, the firstborn of the dead. This is Jesus Christ himself, the one who is the boss of it all and the one who started it and is going to finish it. And he says, I know all the things you do. It's like I'm, I'm looking at your lifestyle. I'm looking at your, your life and the things you do. And he says that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you're like lukewarm water, neither cold, hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, you're looking at this image here, and you can kind of see how it connects with the experience of the Laodicean people with their kind of warm water that was coming out uh, for them to drink. But exactly what is Jesus talking about with this imagery? So let me explain that. And I want to talk about, first of all, what's hot and what's not. And I want to uh, use... uh, kind of an illustration that Campus Crusade uh, would use in their evangelism sometimes on campuses. And so they'd have this picture of this, uh, little, this circle that would be like your life and all the different aspects of your life. And in the middle is a throne. That's what that what looks like an H is. That's a throne. Like what's, what's ruling your life, right? And so the hot person is the one where Jesus, symbolized by that cross there, is on the throne. So the hot life is where you're seriously living according to God's plan. And you see that E that's in that circle. That's ego. That's, you know, you and me and kind of like, hey, this is what I want and stuff. But that's being ordered there by Jesus on the throne. And all those dots there are the different aspects of our lives, like our job, and our relationships, you know, and our marriage, if, if we're married, and our finances, our entertainment, all of our interests and stuff. And all of that is being ordered by the fact that Jesus is on the throne of our lives and we're seriously living according to God's plan. Um, and the question, that begs the question then, what does it mean if Jesus is like ruling our lives here, right? Remember, you talked about, I know your deeds. So when we're talking hot, we're not talking primarily about emotions, although those come along with us. We're talking about our lifestyle, our actions. And so we go back to Mark chapter 12 and a discussion that Jesus had with some religious guys. So it says, one of the teachers of religious law was standing there listening to the debate he realized that Jesus had answered well, so he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? So he's going, look, there's 613 commandments, right? 248, you know, you shall do this. 365, you shall not do that. He's going, out of all these 613, which are the most important? And Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. 
Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. So he's going to love God. You know, what God wants is to love him with all of our hearts and to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. Let's go, okay, so what exactly would that mean? Uh, so we go to 1 John 5, verse 3, and it says there, loving God means keeping his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, you've got to keep in mind, God is love, right? That's his primary thing, and he's all about love. So what he does is he lays out these specifics in the rest of the commandments, and these are ways that he's going, like, look, if you live this way, things are going to work out for you. You know, this is the way the, the world I've designed actually works, and this is going to be good for you, and you're going you're to do well, and I want you to do well. And so God loves it when you and I follow in his, you know, his precepts and what he's, what he's telling us to do. And his commands aren't burdensome because he's working with us and in us to fulfill these things. And we're going, yeah, we feel good about ourselves when we do the stuff that he's telling us to do. Jesus told his followers in John 14, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You know, so this is a description of that life that's that's hot. I, I, I thought of this. Uh, Rich Mullins was a, a Christian singer back in the day, died in a car accident when he was about 40, 41. But he was talking about like knowing the will of God. And he says, it's not complicated. God's will is that you love him with all your heart and soul and mind, also that you love your neighbor as yourself. So he says, get busy with that, and then if God wants you to do something unusual, he'll take care of it. Say, for example, that he wants you to go to Egypt. If that's the case, he'll provide 11 jealous brothers and they'll sell you into slavery. <laughs> now, he's not talking here about John Safe, you know, who, you know, when he knows to go to Egypt, it's like his dad goes, hey, John, can you bring your family or whatever? But he's talking about that Bible story, uh, if you remember, where, you know, here's Joseph and, and uh, it's like God's got a plan for him and it's going to be in Egypt. So he has these circumstances. And I started thinking about, you know, the trajectory of the Bible and how many times in the Bible, it's like here are ordinary people like you and me, you know, they're faithfully following what the Lord says and all the stuff they're doing in, you know, in their lives. And then God's got a special thing. And so he, he makes sure that they know. You know, there, maybe it's a burning bush. You know, maybe it's these circumstances in Egypt. Maybe it's like somebody, you know, who's authoritative, speaking into their lives. Maybe it's that inner prompting of the Holy Spirit where it's just like, you've got to do this thing, and you know that you know that God is, wants you to fulfill this particular task. And so God makes it clear, and as we follow his direction, that's what he describes in Revelation 3 as hot. You know, I, just in the, you know, the, the secular world here, here's a good example of what that would look like, uh, at least just in a different type of uh, venue. So that's Steph Curry, and he's looking at his hand, and, and I, I picked this picture for a reason here. But there's this book out recently called The Right Call by Sally Jenkins, and she's talking about what is the difference in the approach that elite athletes, 
the really good ones, the Joe Thomases, you know, the Steph Currys, the Tom Brady's, what is it that makes them excel and others don't? And one of the things that she says is they have a conscious, make a conscious decision to work toward an identity, to refuse to let events or other people decide who or what you will be. So like a guy like Steph Curry, he goes like, okay, my identity is three-point shooter for my team. And so what he, if they say, if you go up to Steph Curry and you shake hands with him or you touch his hand, it's amazing how calloused his hand is. They said he's got the hands of a wood chopper. Why? Because Steph Curry makes 2,000 baskets a week. His practice regimen is just shooting hundreds and hundreds of shots every single day. Why? Because that's his identity, and he works toward that, and he refuses to let anything stand in the way of that. Now, our identity as, you know, as believers is that we're disciples of Jesus Christ. Our identity is not based on anything else, not based on our desires, our orientations, or anything else. We're followers of Jesus. And so we make that conscious decision to work toward that identity, and we don't let our circumstances, and we don't let other people and their expectations or what's politically correct or what the trend of the times is or anything like that get in the way of deciding who or what we're going to be. This is what, who we are. That's what it means to be hot. And so if that's hot, then cold, which would be the opposite, would be where you have a self-directed life that excludes Jesus from the picture. So your self-directed lifestyle is opposed to what God requires. And the way they, would, they picture it there is, okay, your ego is on the throne. It's like, this is what I want. These are my desires. This is what I'm going to do to fulfill them. I don't care what it means. And then you notice the dots are kind of like disordered there, and that's the idea that there's a certain randomness to, like, how do I feel today, you know, kind of stuff. And Jesus is outside the picture. So if we go like, well, Jesus doesn't want me to do that, we go, well, tough luck for him. You know, it's, it's about me. That's the deal. I don't care about that other kind of stuff. That's cold. It's cold. And the extreme example of, like, being cold, I suppose, would be, like, serial killers, you know, just great barbarians like that. Uh, but there's a whole bunch of, like, pretty ordinary-looking cold people in this world, too. Maybe that's the majority. So now the question is, what does it mean to be lukewarm? And I thought about this, and I thought about this, and I think the best way to describe what it means to be lukewarm is this. It's like Jesus is an accessory in your self-directed life. So, uh, you know, what do I mean by an accessory? I remember uh, one of my students years ago came into my class, one of my senior, seniors, and for the first time he's wearing glasses. And uh, I, I think as a glasses wearer, I always notice if people have new glasses or whatever, I go like, so you, you, you got glasses, what happened? I mean, are you nearsighted or something? Did you figure that? He's going, no, no, he says, these aren't even prescription. I'm going, why are you wearing them? He goes like, it's a fashion accessory. And I thought, I thought what, what's the deal here? But I think he was going like, well, I look more scholarly, or I look, you know, I don't know, it just enhances the look of my face. I didn't quite get that, but it's like an accessory is a thing which can be added to something else in order to make it more useful 
versatile or attractive. So the idea of lukewarm is you're pretty much in charge of your own life. You're running your own show, but you got Jesus in there too. He's one of the aspects of your life. Because Jesus is, you know, you kind of feel like he's kind of good to have around. Might get into some, a, a jam or something, and it's good to pray to Jesus. Maybe I could get something out of him, you know? Or maybe I got some nice, you know, like religious jewelry, like I got this cross that I like to wear. Or some days I'm feeling kind of low, I'll look up some passages and maybe I'll get like encouragement in that way. Or, you know, I like to come to church and hear an encouraging sermon. You know, or just hear something that lifts up my spirits or puts a, a smile on my face or something like that. You know, so you got Jesus in there, but he's not really directing what you're, what you're doing. And you can see in that picture, ego on the throne, Jesus is part of the, the stuff that's in your life. Um, the classic Bible example is that story of Elijah. I think you maybe remember that story where it's like, here are the people of God in the Old Testament, lukewarmers, classic lukewarm people. They're going like, well, there's the Lord, and we sacrifice to him, go to the temple and stuff. But then there's Baal, and Baal is like the prosperity God here, and he's also got this nice sexual component and stuff. I mean, sex and money, what more can you ask, they're saying. And so we got them both, and we'll kind of see how we can tap into the supernatural and get some good stuff for ourselves. And it got to such a point that God's prophet goes like, look it, we got to have a showdown here and decide, who is, who is it? Is it Baal, or is it the Lord? And in 1 Kings 18, he came to the people and he said, how long will you halt and limp between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. To go, we don't, we don't want to make a decision. We want it all. We want both. I remember a, a woman that was checking me out one time, a giant eagle. And this woman was wearing all kinds of jewelry, you know, and she, she had crosses and she had pentagrams, you know, satanic stuff and everything. And I couldn't help myself. And I go, like, you got like a cross, you got a pentagram. Don't those things kind of conflict? And she goes like, well, you get it help anywhere you can get it, you know? I mean, that's like extreme lukewarm, limping between two opinions. I, you know, you heard of like uh, the kind of like quiet quitting. The latest iteration of that is Lazy Girl Jobs. Have you heard of this? It's like there are websites that are devoted to this. And these are like young women who are looking for cushy jobs where they don't have to do much and they can you know, be online with their friends all day and make a good salary. And some of these people claim that they're making like sixty to 80000 And I'm going, are you kidding me? I can only dream of something like that, you know? And I remember, uh, I mean, I saw one of the posts that they put on there was, uh, lazy girl jobs are my faves. All I do is copy and paste the same emails, take three to four call a day. This is lazy, right? Can't even put the S on the plural call a day, take my extra long break, take more breaks, and get a nice salary. You know, this is kind of the lukewarm approach to the job market, isn't it? It's kind of the lazy way, just get out of it what I can, no dedication, uh, no, no effort, or a little effort as I can put in. I think a symptom of the 
lukewarm life is biblical carve-outs. You know, you know what I'm talking about here. Every one of us gets to places in the Bible where we go, I don't like that. You know, I, that seems like uh, opposed to the way I want to live, or that seems kind of like old-fashioned or unpopular. And so our tendency is to want to carve those things out of there. You know, the classic example of this in American history is Thomas Jefferson. What you're looking at there is an actual photos of his Bibles, where he actually literally took, like, knife or scissors, and he cut out places, things in the Bible he didn't like. Like, any time it would have a reference to Jesus having all authority, that's gone. You know, and then anything that he went with, ah, that's offensive. He, he just cut it right out of there. You know, and if you're going to be, if you and I are going to be hot Christians, we're going to have to say, whoa, he's God, I'm not. And I'm going to have to let him judge me as opposed to me judging his word. And so often, I think, in our culture, people just excise things from the scripture that they just go like, no. And many churches are doing that. You know, my brother-in-law is a pastor, you know, pastors in a church that where they just cut out whole sections of Scripture because they're just unpleasant. It's a symptom of the lukewarm life. And I think as we look at our lives, as I look at mine, you know, I think a couple of things that are just maybe indicators of where we're at, hot, cold, lukewarm, is to look at like our charge you know, uh, accounts. And, okay, what is it we're spending our discretionary money on? I mean, what is that about? Who's in charge there? You know, our, our, the checkbook, so to speak. And then to look at our time and go like, wow, okay, here's how I'm spending my time. Who's really running the show here, the, the discretionary time that I've got? And to really, like, let that kind of speak to us in our lives. You know, it goes on in Revelation 3. You say, I'm rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. He's going like, you guys are overrating yourselves. And it, it, isn't, it, isn't it just too easy to overrate ourselves, to go easy on ourselves, to rationalize where we're at? Um, I think lukewarmness is very deceptive. And therefore, is very dangerous. Jesus says it's worse to be lukewarm than it is to be cold. And that's a startling uh, statement. You know, do any of you remember this? Uh, you got to be old, okay? But remember the old uh, Laugh-In show? This was a big comedy show in the 70s. And they'd have this bit where this guy named Artie Johnson would be on there. And he, he played this role of this German soldier. He's this little short guy who's kind of clueless. And he'd kind of rise up in the bushes, and he'd look around, and he'd go, very interesting. <laughs> and then he'd just kind of disappear. And you know, what the, you know what the backstory on this guy was? He was like a tailor in Hollywood. And one day, one of the big shots from the show came in, and the guy was uh, getting measured for a suit. And he goes like, you know, I got this bit. And he goes, so he tries it out. And the, the big shot actor from the show is so taken by it, he gets hired on the spot. So he becomes a, kind of a regular on the show. Now, you'd think he'd go like, you know what? This is my big break. I'm going to be humble. No. What happened with him, they said about three weeks, he was terrorizing the crew, making demands. And by the fifth week, he was already complaining loudly about the scripts. 
And it's like, dude, you're, you have a nine-second bit that occurs several times during the show. It's like, remember where you came from. But it's so easy to kind of think we're bigger and better than we are, you know? I think about this, it's kind of a sad story here, but you remember the, uh, the you know, the Promise School that LeBron James founded down there. And I'm thinking, if you look at the pictures of it, it's beautiful. It's just like, you know, a lot of money invested there. He put some real dollars into that whole thing. But the results haven't been good. You know, it's like three eighth grade classes. Not a single student has passed the state proficiency in math. And that's a low bar if you look at state proficiency expectations. Only 8% of the students can read at grade level. And I think that's a symbol kind of like a, of our lives sometimes. We look kind of nice on the, out, you know, on the surface, and everybody kind of likes us. We get along, and you know, we're respectable and stuff. But who's on the throne in our lives, I think, is the question. C.S. Lewis says, we're half-hearted creatures, fooling around or fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. And you've heard that image before where he says so many times we're like this little kid playing in a mud puddle when actually, if you only knew it, two blocks away is the ocean and the real joy, you know, and the real fun. And so Jesus says in Revelation 3, and by the way, just to go back to that uh, lukewarm versus cold, you know, you read stories, it's interesting, about serial killers who, when they were in prison and facing nothingness and finally examining their lives, became believers. I mean, it happened to Ted Bundy, it happened to Jeffrey Dahmer, it happened to Sam Berkowitz. They were cold, cold, but they became believers in desperation. And then I think, in contrast, I think about the students that I teach at Lutheran West, and they're the nicest kids, and they work hard, and they're just a joy to be with. But so many of them, I just feel like they have a little bit of religion, you know what I'm saying? And it's enough to inoculate them against the gospel. And it's like they're going, well, I'm, you know, I'm a nice kid, and I believe the right stuff. And I think back to when I was that age, and it's exactly the way that I was. You know, I had enough of a religious knowledge that I could just sort of keep Jesus off the throne in my life, and I was just impervious to realizing what my real situation was. And so Jesus says, so I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. He's going, you think you're rich because you got a nice, you know, a nice economic situation? You're not. The real riches are found in me. He's going, then you'll be rich. Also buy white garments for me so you will not be ashamed by your nakedness and ointment for your eyes so you will be able to see. These are all images they could really relate to, like I mentioned at the beginning. And he's going, these white garments are the righteous acts of the saints, the stuff that Jesus, once he gets a hold of our lives, can produce in us. And then he says, I correct and discipline everyone I love, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. And that word love there is not the agape word, which is the typical one used about commitment, but it's a word about fondness. He's going, I really like you guys. That's why I'm scolding you. I'm yelling at you because I love you. And he goes, I'm, I'm going to make things difficult for you and kind of put the pressure on you because I want you to turn to me. You know, he's trying to get our attention. And 
you know, in the lukewarmness that I see sometimes in my life, and I look at, you know, I'm going like, wow, that didn't feel good. I, I can never be at peace, you know. And he's, I think that was like the Lord going, I love you, and I want to turn you back from that kind of nonsense. We're going to need supernatural help to get out of lukewarmness in those areas of our lives, and that can be a painful process. You know, it's like this, I read about this autophagy. It's like starting in the 1990s, scientists finally could look into the individual human cell. And what they discovered shocked them. They discovered that the cell looked like it was eating itself. You know, it was like it was destroying itself from within. Proteins were getting eaten. And then they started to realize, wait a minute, it's not cannibalism. It's basically... They're rejuvenating the cell. They're taking what's dead and they're recycling it into good material. It's like one of these just miracles of God's creation. But that's what he's doing in our lives so many times is he's turning up the heat, he's destroying what isn't going to work because he wants to rebuild us bigger and better and stronger, more hot for him. Where do we go from here? And the end of this letter is just really precious, I'll tell you. Because Jesus gives a great invitation. And he says in verse 20, kind of famous verses, Look, I stand at the door and knock. It's like at the, at the door of our house. And he's knocking on that door. He's not going to barge in there. But he's going to wait to see us open that door. And he says, if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. And we will share a meal together as friends. He says, open that door, respond. And I thought, you know, it just occurred to me this morning, this is a story of my life. It must have been about 40-some years ago or 43 years ago, is that I opened that door and invited Jesus into my life. And I, at the time, I didn't think of it as like a big event, but things really turned around from there. And things started heating up in terms of my relationship with the Lord. And it's like it, Henry Cloud talks about this so well. I read this book earlier this summer called Trust. Just such a well-written book. Henry Cloud is a, a brilliant psychologist. I've heard him speak, and he also happens to be really a dedicated Christian man. And he's talking about how in relationships, sometimes we lose trust with people, right? They've wronged us, betrayed us. And he's going, is there any way to rebuild that? And he talks about the importance of forgiveness. But he says this about forgiveness. It only takes one person to forgive. You can forgive somebody even if they haven't, like, turned back to you. Even if they're going their merry way. You can, it, takes only one, it only takes one person to forgive. Jesus did that. While he offers forgiveness to everyone, not everyone is reconciled in a relationship with him. There's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. And then Cloud goes on and he says, that kind of relationship requires something from them. They have to confess that they've sinned against him, say they are sorry and repent. If they do, the relationship between him and them is reconciled and restored. And I think one of the problems we sometimes have as believers is we don't respond to Jesus' invitation. And he's going, yeah, he says, just open that door. You know, and if you're seeing lukewarmness in your life this morning, you know, this is a, a chance, this is where to go with it. He's saying, just open that door 
And he's saying, confess, you know, just agree. Yeah, I've gone wrong. You know, I've, I've been trying to run my own life and just have you as, a, as an accessory and repent. And Jesus is more than willing to restore and reconcile uh, with you. And he says, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. And that word, that meal word there is the, the big meal of the day. That's the connotation there. It's like one you linger over. I don't know if you've ever had an experience where you had like little kids with you, like I just had grandkids with us this week. That's my daughter, Sarah. She brought along Cecilia and Vivian, you know, two young grandkids. And what they'll do is they'll come to the meal, they'll eat, and they'll go, can we be excused? Because they don't want to hang around there and just spend hours talking to you, right? They want to play. They're there for the chow. Okay, and then, and then they want to go, right? But on Wednesday night this last week, Sarah goes, I'm not going to be uh, uh, with you for supper tonight. I'm going to go out with one of my friends from oh, the old days at Lutheran West. And uh, so she left about 7, 7.15, something like that. She didn't get back from that dinner till 12.30. And uh, I said, wow, you, I said, we were, I didn't even hear you come in. She said, yeah, I got in about 1230. There was just so much to talk about. She said, we closed the restaurant down and we closed a bar down and we closed another bar down and we're just talking and talking and, and just sharing with each other. It's, it was so good to, to see my friend. And that's what Jesus wants to do in our lives too. He's going, you just invite me in. And he says, I want to spend that quality time with you and just and love on you. And that's, that's his goal here for those Laodiceans, and I think that was his, that's his goal today for every one of us in this place. So let's pray. Uh, Lord, as we come to you this morning, I think probably most of us can see some areas of uh, lukewarmness in our lives. Maybe for some of us it's pervasive. And I just want to pray, Lord, that uh, each one of us would avail ourselves of this generous invitation that you've given us. Open the door uh, to you. Just come to you as honestly and humbly and just invite you in. And Lord, we thank you for your promises and how, how good you are. Uh, you just uh, you love us in spite of our weaknesses and our waywardness. Thank you, Jesus, for making all this good stuff possible. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.